So Bible, the origin story. So where did this library, this collection of books come from? And kind of the big question that we'll be asking today is how do we know that the Bible that we read today is the same Bible that ancient people read yesterday? And by yesterday, I mean yester, 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 yester century. Uh, so we'll be kind of taking a journey through uh, a few millennia to answer this question. Now, there's a question behind my question, and a few of them, and those questions are, why should Jews or Christians care about this collection of books? Why should we take it for granted that this library of 39 books in the Hebrew Bible, 27 books in the New Testament, why should we care that these have been used by people over the centuries? Uh, the, another question behind the question is, what does it mean for a source, a scriptural text? What does it mean for it to be authoritative? Uh, so, you know, if you've been around the church, you may hear phrases batted around like we see that scripture is the authoritative source for understanding God or how we live our lives, things like that. So what does it mean for a source to be authoritative? Uh, and another question behind the question does a religious text need to be inerrant in order to be authoritative? And we're going to talk about what this whole inerrancy thing is and means. And uh, actually, we'll, we'll start with inerrancy right now. So this is a statement on inerrancy. I'm not going to tell you where it came from or who wrote it, because uh, we've got a poll question coming up in a little bit. Uh, here's a, a statement on inerrancy. Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is, and here's your, your key definition, without error or fault in all its teaching. There's your definition of what it is to be inerrant. Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, then it then in its witness to God's saving grace in its indiv in individual lives. In other words, what that paragraph is saying is, Scripture is without error fault not only about salvation, Jesusy, how do you get to heaven when you die stuff, but it's also without error or fault, according to the statement about creation, world history, its origins. Both of them are perfectly true. Continuing, the statement says, the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded. So you, you remember last week I talked about the, uh, the metaphor of the waterbed and the spring mattress. So what this statement does is it sets up a waterbed theology that if any bit of these 66 books of scripture are somewhat impaired in their in, in their perfection, it's like dropping a bowling ball on their waterbed and everything gets out of whack, according to this statement. Okay. It continues. We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of scripture, meaning 
not the copies of the copies of the copies of manuscripts that were passed on through history, but the originals. Those originals are inspired and inerrant, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from the available manuscripts with great accuracy. And we further affirm that copies and translations of scriptures, scripture are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. We're going to talk about what the original is in a little bit. And they continue, we deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autograph. So here this paragraph admits, we don't have access to the originals. We don't have access to the autographs, but that doesn't matter. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by that fact, and we further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. All right, so big, heady language. Hope you had your tea, coffee, or a, uh, you know, a loving, consensual slap in the face this morning to wake up because we're diving in deep. Um, so here's, here's my first question for you all. When was the statement composed? All right, so about three-fourths of you have answered. Most of you will not be tricked. Uh, a few of you guessed the first century, so this would be, uh, you know, the, the very first generation of Christians. Uh, a few of you guessed the 13th century, so, you know, pre-Protestant Reformation, late yeah. medieval times. And then the bulk of you guessed correctly uh, the 20th century. The statement was composed in 1978, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Now, I bring this up for a couple of reasons. Inerrancy is a theological new kid on the block. Now, it didn't wasn't invented in 1978. I don't want to say that. That's not true. Uh, it was probably most formally put in 1978. Uh, it had been been around for, I would argue, a few decades before that, the early 1900s. And inerrancy was a knee-jerk reaction to uh, a movement called theological liberalism uh, that was happening as a result of critical scholarship of the Bible. Now, that goes outside what we're going to talk about today. But these sorts of statements that uh, the, the Bible is perfectly true, not only in salvation history, but also about what it says about history and creation. And if any part of it is not true, then the whole thing is not true. Those kinds of statements were not made prior to the 20th century. Uh, so what... Uh, evangelicals and theological conservatives will try to say is, boy, if you reject scriptural inerrancy, then you are rejecting this bedrock foundational piece of Christian faith. And I'm here to tell you, yeah, it's it's only about 100 years old and somehow 20 centuries of Christian and, and 30 centuries of Jews and Hebrews managed to survive without this doctrine. Okay. Let's keep going. We affirm that the inspiration, this is what this poll, or I'm sorry, what this statement said before. We affirm that this inspiration, strictly speaking, applies to the autographic text of scripture. And we further affirm that the copies and translations of scriptures are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully 
represent the original. So our question is, what is the original? I see a raised hand. I'm going to assume that is a true raised hand and not an accident. Enrique, do you have a question? Yes, um, and we can probably maybe answer this question just before I... Um, yeah. Um, but just on that concept of iridescence, do you think that it also had, you know, was that kind of playing a role like on civil rights um, kind of along the way? I, so this gets to somebody's question from last week of where did the jackass interpretations come from? And as best as I understand my uh, American Christian history, movements towards what we could call a theological conservatism were usually reactions against something else. So 1970s, uh, you're going to be responding to civil rights, the sexual revolution, uh, the beginnings of like the very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? more transparently available uh, like LGBTQ rights uh, and marches uh, and um, things like that. And there's almost always an anxious response from particularly the American church uh, because of that. Uh, so people like to point out, and this is a bit of a diversion, but like the whole, well, you know, we affirm the traditional view on Christian marriage meaning male and female. Um, however, <laughs> most of the statements on marriage uh, also originate from the 20th century. There, there was not a traditional view, uh, in part because LGBTQ people had to uh, stay closeted for centuries and centuries and centuries. And there's plenty of historical evidence that when they did pop up in the European church, um, priests, uh, including like some Wesleyan, like early Methodist uh, pastors, like they made concessions for them, which is a whole other fascinating history. So to your question, um, I think I think your instinct is right, that there there is a bit of reactionary um, bits to how these sort of inerrancy movements come about. Yeah, and if you don't have your chat open, Tanetta points out uh, racial integration, the women's movement, pushback against the Vietnam War were all really important to the formation of theological conservatism. And I could give you a list of about six or seven books that really lay this out, like with great evidence. Like, uh, there's a great book. Uh, I can't remember the author right now, but it's called In God We Trust. It talks about uh, the, the beginnings of evangelicalism and how it had to do with big business and corporations uh, as a result, uh, the after effects of World War II. Like, it's nasty, nasty stuff. All right, let's keep moving. I'll, there is going to be some space for some questions. So if you got some, um, write them down. We'll get to them. Okay, so the statement on inerrancy says... This is strictly about the autographic text, the originals. So our question is, what is the original? What are we talking about? Um, so let's just, we're going to focus a lot on the Hebrew Bible, just kind of out of interest of time. Um, but a lot of what we're going to say about the Hebrew Bible is going to apply to the New Testament as well. 
Uh, so by Hebrew Bible, referring to this thing that Christians often call the Old T Testament. And in your Christian Bibles, uh, it's usually in this order of 39 books. You have the Pentateuch, uh, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy. Sometimes this is called the, the books of Moses uh, or the Torah. Penta meaning five, tuk is a word for scroll or book. Uh, so that's your first set, Pentateuch. Then you've got the history books, uh, and that's the book after Deuteronomy is Joshua. Then you have Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, uh, and Ruth is in there too. Sorry, <sighs> always forgetting the women, us men. I'm so sorry, my bad. Um, after history, you've got the writings. So you've got Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. The major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Daniel. And they're called major because they are the longer books. And then the so-called minor prophets, not because they're less important, but because they are the smaller books, Hosea through Malachi. And I will confess, even after $50,000 of grad school, I still can't say the minor prophets in order correctly. I need to learn a song. Uh, so that's the Christian order. And this this order came about, I don't know, uh, second, third, fourth century, uh, trying to arrange the material in a way that made some sort of topical sense. Uh, you can go out to a bookstore today and you can buy a chronological Bible, uh, which puts this in an even different order. Uh, but that basically admits like what you're looking at here is not a chronological order of events necessarily, because some of the minor prophets were writing during the events of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, so on, etc. Now, that's the Christian order. The Jews have a different order. Um, let me refresh here for a second. So we actually see this hinted at in uh, a saying of Jesus in Luke 24. Uh, Jesus is talking to some disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law for Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So when Jesus was alive, the Hebrews, the Jews, the Jewish people, had a collection of sacred documents uh, that we call the Old Testament, they would have just called the scriptures, and it had a different order, generally arranged in law, prophets, and psalms. So the Jewish order is not 39 books, but 24 books, uh, because they condense some books together. So instead of First and Second Samuel, it's just Samuel. Instead of First and Second Kings, it's just Kings. Instead of Ezra and Nehemiah being different books, they are just one book. Uh, and it's in the order of Torah, the law, uh, Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings, law, prophet, writings. And this gets condensed to a ac neologism acronym called the Tanakh, T-N-K, the Tanakh. Uh, that's the word for how the Jews refer to their entire scripture. 
So Torah often gets translated as law. This is somewhat of an unfortunate translation. Uh, it more generally means instruction or teaching. Uh, and again, same thing as the Pentateuch. These two are referring to the same five books of Moses. You've got the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, but here's where we begin to notice some differences. They don't call um, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings historical books. They call them pr prophet works um, because they were put together either by the prophets or they're because of the actions of the prophets that these things take place. So you have the former prophets, and then you have the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Uh, and then instead of, you know, relegating the 12 minor prophets to little, little status, they're just called the 12. And Hosea through Malachi are actually one book in the Jewish Bible. So your Torah, T, Nevi'im, N, then you have the Ketuvim, K, Tanakh, K. And these are the writings. So that includes the poetry, like Psalms, Proverbs, the Book of Job. Now, this is a difference from Christians. Christians often consider the Book of Job a historical work, whereas the Jews consider it a literary work. Uh, and if you read Job and kind of break it out, uh, it reads like a play probably a really boring one because it's just a bunch of people standing around and talking, but it does read like a play. Um, so you've got the poetry. Then you've got something called the Five Scrolls. And these were the latest to be collected uh, a century or two before the life of Jesus. And these are typically associated with Jewish feasts. So the Song of Songs uh, is about Passover. And uh, in rabbinical literature, it's often made into an extended metaphor about God's relationship with Israel. Uh, the Book of Ruth is associated with Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. Uh, and this is a harvest festi festival, and some of the major events in the Book of Ruth happen uh, in the fields with gleaning. You have the Book of Lamentations, uh, which is associated with a Jewish feast uh, about lamenting the times that the temple has been destroyed, both Solomon's temple uh, and the second temple in 70 AD. You have Ecclesiastes, uh, which is this w wisdom, vanity, vanity, everything is worthless and pointless. Uh, this is associated with the Feast of Sukkot or Booths. Uh, and then you have Esther, uh, and it's associated with the events, uh, a feast celebrating the events of Esther uh, called Purim. Uh, where the Jews are saved from destruction, thanks to uh, the Queen Esther. And then finally, you have this kind of other category. <laughs> uh, and uh, different Jews throughout the centuries have put this in different places. Uh, but you have the book of Daniel, uh, which isn't te technically prophecy, uh, but gets put in the category of apocalypse. We have these big, grandiose visions of statues made out of different materials, and uh, Daniel prays, and his prayer gets blocked by the uh, god of Persia, and so Michael the archangel has to come and fight in order for Daniel's prayer to be received by God. Really fascinating stuff. Ezra Nehemiah uh, doesn't get put in the history or the prophets, uh, but gets a different category here is the refounding of Israel after the exile. And then Chronicles is this retelling of 
the stories of first and second Samuel and first and second Kings. And it's much condensed. Some things are pushed out or away. And there's also some theological shaping going on uh, from what happened in Samuel Kings to the way that the folks who are putting Chronicles together, um, yeah, how they wrote and edited this work. So all together, that is the Tanakh, the T-N-K, the Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. All right, so I wanted to give you just a basic structure of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible before we get into some of these um, where did it come from questions. But let's pause for a moment. Questions, thoughts, things you want me to restate here. Um, this may be something that you're planning on getting to, but um, when did the order change? Do we know? Like when Christians were like, hmm, heck this, we're going to do our own thing. We love it. <laughs> so this is very simple. We don't exactly know. <laughs> um, in terms of the Hebrews, we don't have as great of records as to who, when, where they decided this is going to be the order. We have lots of records of this is the order, uh, and those arise from around the third, second, first century before Jesus, uh, BCE, before the Common Era. Um, but we don't know exactly how or why that happened, just the fact that that was the case on the ground. Um, for the Christians, um they began to rearrange the material some of it is just historical accident of as you're moving around scrolls um and you're copying things to papyrus you begin to break things out perhaps differently um it also had to do with what was being used by the new testament writers and what were particularly popular books and so that would change some of the order um, and then I think it was formalized, like somebody sat and wrote down uh, more in like the fourth and fifth century. And that's going to be associated with a guy named Jerome, who put together a Latin version of the entire Bible, both Hebrew and Christian, uh, in something called the Vulgate. Uh, and that was when the order really got nailed down for Christians. Um, and again, this is out, kind of outside of our topic today but that's when things like um the deuterocanonical books or the apocryphal books that, that are in the catholic and orthodox bibles uh got uh, added in there um let's see tuva says in the chat it seems like the difference in order for jews and christians reflects maybe a difference in doctrines of scripture and there is definitely a case there where the end of the hebrew bible is second chronicles and the end of second chronicles is the temple's destroyed the king has been put to exile but there's hope for something new and this is the great jewish hope that the temple would be rebuilt that the kingdom would be restored the end of the Christian Bible is the book of Malachi, and Malachi talks about a Messiah who's going to come out of Bethlehem, which definitely gets into Christian themes. Uh, so 
you, if you're a Jew and you get to the end of Second Chronicles, you have these big feelings about temple, land restored, the line of David restored. If you're a Christian, you get to the end of Malachi. Well, you just read about a Messiah coming from Bethlehem. Turn the page and now you're in Matthew. Okay, so let's work our way backwards from English, the Bibles that you have on your phone or on your desk or next to your bed or in a box buried somewhere, uh, to the so-called originals. So you've got an English Bible um, and somebody is translating from the original language for the Hebrew Bible, it would be Hebrew with some Aramaic. Uh, for the New Testament, it's gonna be Greek. Where are they getting these originals from? That's our question. The primary way is through something called the Masoretic Text. So there's a group of scribes and Torah <laughs> scholars, this is for the Hebrew Bible, and they produced laboriously detailed copies of the Tanakh. And if we had more time, I would go into just how astounding uh, the Masoretes are in the amount of work and labor and detail they went to do all this. It is simply wild. Um, a couple examples would be whenever they came across the divine name, Y-H-W-H in English, yod Hey vav Hey, the Yahweh, Jehovah, that name, um, they would write the first um, letter, Hebrew letter, Yod, and then they, they would go and take a bath, and they would wash themselves, and then they would write the next letter, Vav, and then they would go and take a bath, and they would wash themselves, and then they would go and write the third and the fourth letter, and they would, they would bathe between each one. This, by the way, is why in our English Bibles, you'll come across the word Lord in all capitals or maybe small caps, because uh, they eventually got tired of writing the holy name. They didn't just get tired of it, but they were also said it was should be treated with such holiness that we're not going to write Yahweh. We're going to write the word Adonai instead, which is Lord. Uh, and so whenever you see the word Lord in all caps or small caps in your Hebrew Bible, your Old Testament, uh, it's a stand-in for the divine name Yahweh, the name that God had revealed uh, about God's self to Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, they would have these pages uh, reserved in their works of copying over the Bible that were these uh, indexes of letters and numbers. Uh, so it would say something like page 312, Aleph, first letter of the Hebrew al alphabet, 36, Bet, second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, 22. And what this was, was if you're copying the Bible, you should know, oh, person who comes after me a generation later, that if you're copying page 312, there's 36 Alephs on the page. There are 22 Bates on the page. There are 29, what, you know, so on, et cetera. So it wasn't just about copying each word or each letter, um, you know, one by one, but also going back and checking your work and making sure that you had all the right number of letters and uh, symbols and all of that on the page. Uh, they would have special markings for what the exact middle of a book was. And so that word in the middle of Psalms would get extra, extra flourishes and be extra large on the page. Um, or what the, you know, the 
final word on this, but like just insane amounts of, you know, these are the people that today, if they were alive, they would really love spreadsheets and know all of the secrets of Excel. Like that's what they were doing a thousand years ago. The Masera, they're called Masorites because those Masera are the pronunciation markers for how to actually pronounce the Hebrew language. Because Hebrew uh, has no vowel markings. It is a consonantal written language. And what the Masorites were doing was that they were passing along, well, this is how it's pronounced. And so they invented vowel markings for their language, uh, these things called Masera, so that people would know how to actually say these things. And again, the word Yahweh, we guess that YHWH is pronounced Yahweh, but we don't actually know because they refused to put the vowel markings on it uh, because they didn't want somebody to say the name uh, erroneously. <laughs> so now we just have to guess. It's a pretty good guess, but it's a guess that YHWH is pronounced Yahweh. So that's what the Masorites are doing. Now, the Hebrew Bible was written anywhere from a thousand to 200 years before Jesus. You're thinking a thousand to 200 BC, long, 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 long time ago. The Masorites are doing their work of this meticulous copying of scripture in the 700s, 700 years after Jesus. So that's over a thousand years later than when the Hebrew Bible was actually composed. Now, they had some sources of their own, but those sources are lost to history. The copies, like the physical copies of what the Masorites are doing that we have today, scholars have in museums and uh, archives or whatever, they come from 7, 8, 900 CE. And the biggest complete copy that we have of the Hebrew Bible is called the Leningrad Codex, uh, and it comes from the 1100s CE. So you might be wondering, well, don't we have anything older than that? Like, if we want to know that the Bible that we're reading today is the same Bible that Jesus was reading, was the same Bible that uh, early G uh, Jews and were reading, don't we have anything older than something that was composed a thousand years later? And the answer is, we do. And it's called the Septuagint. Septuagint is uh, often abbreviated LXX, uh, that's Roman numerals for 70, because there is this uh, legend about the Septuagint that 70 scholars went into 70 different places, all translated from the Hebrew to, a gr to the Greek, uh, and came up with the exact same translation. So it's often ca called the LXX, the group of 70. But this is what's happening. Um, Again, pre-Jesus, uh, Alexander the Great is going all around the ancient world of the Mediterranean and conquers it, and Greek becomes the primary language of the region. Uh, so Jews have been exiled to Babylon and Assyria and around the Mediterranean world, uh, and they're, be they're needing to learn Greek uh, so that they can, you know, be in the marketplace, so that they can buy, sell, trade, uh, that they can raise their children, so on, etc. So, if you're a Jew and you're learning Greek, your children are learning Greek, but you want to pass on your 
heritage, your religious heritage to your children, you're probably going to need a Greek translation of your scriptures uh, pretty quickly. So that's what the Septuagint is. It is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, of the Tanakh. And it was put together uh, around 200 to 300 BCE, before the time of Christ. And we've got some manuscripts, copies of this from pretty close to around the time of Jesus as well. Uh, so that's, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred years earlier than the Masoretic text that is often used uh, to create our English Bibles. Now, are there differences between the Masoretic Hebrew, but copied much later, and the Septuagint Greek, but translated much earlier? And the answer is yes. Now, I'm going to pause here. Uh, I, I'm, I'm fire hydranting, I'm sure, a little bit. So do we have questions, things you need clarified? Um, you know, we're talking massive time scales here. So if you need, you need some help, uh, I'm sure your question would be appreciated by others. So any questions before we go forward? So the Masoretic texts were copied from, they did have copies of like the original Hebrew. We just don't have them anymore. And they were translating from those, or were they using the Septuagint? They have copies lost to history, lost to okay. time, that they were copying from. Yep. Um, okay, I'm going to show you something that's probably going to look slightly overwhelming, but why not? So here is a scholar's perception of where all these copies were. So start at the bottom where it says lost. Um, this would be the quote unquote original. And we're going to talk about why that's a, just a bad idea. But this original, you know, I'm Jeremiah. I write the book of Jeremiah. Now someone has to copy it. Okay, where did that go? So though there were some copies that went to the right and then some copies that went over to the right. And then MT is the Masoretic text, which is used for many of our English-speaking Bibles. And then there are some copies that go over to the left. Those were used to create the Septuagint, and then a whole bunch of other versions of the Jewish Bible as well. As you can see from this very confusing chart, it's a wild ride. Like This is why biblical scholarship is just the most exciting thing that you could possibly do with your life because you're trying to reconstruct where all of these different copies came from, who wrote them, what the differences are, and more being discovered uh, from archaeology every day. Yeah, I have a question. So why is the like current English Bible translated from the Masoretic text when there are so many lost copies in between compared to the um, Septuagint when that's much more like closer to the quote unquote original? Is it because there's less language translation steps in between? Yeah, yeah. And so I'm simplifying a little bit. Um, most modern English translations no longer use only the Masoretic text. Uh, and we'll talk about why in just a second, but they're using a whole bunch of different things in order 
to get to what they think is the original Hebrew. So the Masoretic text uh, is Hebrew already, so it's probably pretty close, but uh, it's pretty late historically. Um, so they're going to use other things as well to see if there's other, if there's things that are closer to the original. Um, so let's keep going and, and we'll get into, into that. So are there differences? Yes. But here's an example from Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, the Common English Bible, this is the one I use on a daily ba basis, based primarily off the Masoretic, says, For the Lord wanted to crush him and to make him suffer. So this comes from the Suffering Servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Christians have historically taken this to be about Jesus, the Messiah. Um, we see this similarly in the New King James. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Uh, he has put him to grief. But if you look at the Septuagint, the Septuagint says, the Lord wishes to cleanse him of his wound. That's a pretty significant difference. The Lord wanted to crush him and to make him suffer. The Lord wishes to cleanse him of his wound. That's interesting. Here's another example. Jeremiah 17, 9. You probably had this told to you as a teenager if you grew up in youth group. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Septuagint. The heart is deep behind all things. And so are humans. Who can understand it? It's a pretty significant difference. This is used to, you know, often shame people into, you can't trust your conscience. You can't trust your heart. It's evil, wicked, above all else. Septuagint, the heart is deep beyond all things. Who can understand it? Now, the Septuagint actually has an entirely different version of Jeremiah. Not like word for word different, but like it's shorter. The material is rearranged. So if you're a scholar and you're trying to sort out what's the original, well, maybe the Septuagint person messed up. Maybe the Masoretes had better copies that they were referring back to. And the Septuagint translators, they stayed up too late. They got drunk. They were just feeling like they wanted to make God seem fluffier and nicer than other. Like, how do we know that the Septuagint translators are the ones in the right? And until about the 1950s, this was the common thinking that the Masoretes had the best version and the Septuagint was in some way corrupted. Yes, it was older, but maybe they just weren't as faithful to the translation process as the Masoretes were. This was the common thinking until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Now, Dead Sea Scrolls, a whole other story, big, long topic, long story short. Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered by some shepherds in the late 40s. Um, originally, they started getting sold on the antiquities black market. Eventually, some Hebrew scholars uh, in, in Israel, Palestine, figured out what had been discovered. And what had been discovered were Hebrew, so original language, manuscripts of the Bible, the entire Tanakh, that were from the first century before or after Christ, somewhere in that time. So the Masoretic text, which the oldest ones that we have are from 700 years after Jesus, now back up the Hebrew to 
the time of Jesus or slightly before. This was a massive deal to biblical scholars. Now you had access to copies of the Hebrew Bible from around the time of Jesus, from around the destruction of the temple or a hundred or so years before. So your job then is going to be, okay, let's take the Masoretic text and let's compare it to the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many changes were there? How good were the Masoretes at their job? This is massive, big stuff. Uh, and it took decades, partially because they had to reclaim these things from the black market, partially because it's not like these were just sitting in like a nice little library shelf. Like it was like a 2000 piece puzzle, but with no picture on the box. And so it had to be copied and rearranged and all these things. It was also very secretive and there were conspiracies around it. But eventually, like now you can just go on the internet and like flip through each of these pages of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The question, is the Masoretic text close to the Dead Sea Scrolls? Here's the thing. The Dead Sea Scrolls show evidence of two different Hebrew versions of Jeremiah. So we're into our problem here of what's the original? Which one is the original book of Jeremiah? Is it the one that the Masoretes were using? Or is it the one the Septuagint was using? Dead Sea Scrolls say, well, they were, they were both floating around the Jewish community at the same time. There is evidence that there are actually three different um, versions of the Hebrew Bible all floating around the Jewish Hebrew-speaking community from around the time of Christ and before. So that gets a big problem with our, inerrance, our statement on inerrancy from 1978 they are inerrant as much as they are faithful to the original. But what if there wasn't an original? What if there were multiple originals that different communities of Jews were all using and all saying, well, this is, this is our holy scripture? During the life of Christ and the birth of the early church, uh, the transition from Second Temple Judaism, temples destroyed, and then it becomes rabbinical Ju Judaism, there were perhaps a dozen different versions of the Jewish scriptures being used. So we found three in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but there is evidence in other communities elsewhere of all these different versions. So you have the Septuagint, which has a Hebrew text behind it. You have something called the Samaritan Torah. Samaritans, uh, you might know from some Bible stories of Jesus and the woman at the well. They had a different version of the Torah. You have something called the Peshitta, which is uh, from the Syriac version of the Hebrew Bible. The Targum, which is an Aramaic version of the Hebrew Bible. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls review, reveal at least three versions of a pre-Christian Hebrew Bible. And that gets us back to our very confusing chart over here. Now, this chart presumes that there was one original, and then they all branched out from here. But there's actually no evidence that there was one original that then branched out. The evidence suggests that there was always multiple copies with slight I would say slight to major differences, all being used by Jewish communities throughout the Mediterranean world simultaneously. So the biblical statement on inerrancy has got a big problem of its foundational logic. It's inerrant in as much as it is the same as the originals. So I'm going to play you a little bit of a, a podcast 
uh, from Dr. Pete Enns, the Bible for Normal People. And he talks for a moment about this. Uh, some might call it a problem. I don't think it's a problem. I think it is something quite magnificent about our Bibles. In my more snarky moments, which I rarely have, but in my more snarky moments, I think of the Dead Sea Scrolls as God smiling down on an errantist and saying, take that. The great theological and spiritual value for me, at least this is how I see it, of having an Old Testament like the one we do with its messy 2000 plus year journey from then to now, well, it may be to remind us that only the Spirit and not the Bible will be our true source of comfort, the anchor, that which helps us make sense of our lives. The Bible is not broken, but it is what it is. Perhaps the lesson from this long history we glimpsed, or, or better, the challenge of this long history, is to learn to accept and rest in what we have as being adequate, even beautiful and powerful, while also setting aside the idea that our Bible simply must be a faithful rendition of an original in order for it to be of value. And if not, well, we can't, quote, trust it. Maybe the lesson of a Bible such as we have is not to expect of it things it can't deliver, not to see it as the mind of God perfectly Xeroxed for us. Rather, to see the messy history of the Bible is not a problem, but telling us something about God. The God works in and through the mess, the complexity, the humanity. Maybe this Bible that we actually have can serve as a constant reminder to place our trust in God, whom we can't control, rather than in the text that we think we can. So, all that to say, and this is my conclusion, what if, what if the diversity is the point? You've got these various versions, copies, originals of the Hebrew Bible, all floating about the Hebrew world, Jewish, Jewish world. And God doesn't seem to have a big problem with that. Uh, God doesn't seem to have a, a, a crisis on God's hands where God tries to force it all into one original that everybody must follow. But rather, there are dozens of, of Hebrew communities, all with their slightly different, sometimes majorly different versions of the Hebrew Bible, telling largely the same story about God's redemptive purposes for humanity. And God doesn't want seem to quell or uh, stomp down on any of those? What if the diversity is in fact telling us, as Pete N says, something about God and how God communicates to the world? Well, then this whole inerrancy thing, well, it is only reliable in as much as it tells precisely the truth about uh, history and all of these things. Well, that that's answering a question that, that the Bible was never intended to answer. What if the Bible is telling us rather something about uh, God working through various people in various ways, sometimes with differing conclusions, and yet God doesn't seem too anxious about it? All right, I am going to stop talking. And I want to answer some questions, and then we're going to go into uh, a little bit of a break and a breakout session. So what what questions does this raise? Anthony, I've got a question. Yeah. Um, so I, 
you know, I grew up in a very evangelical tradition where, um, obviously, you know, they were held to inerrancy and I had a lot of sort of lessons from, um, what I would say range from biblical scholars to biblical scholars. Um, and they were all very convinced of inerrancy, but despite sometimes appearing to have a lot of scholarship work, didn't seem to consider or wrestle with this. Um, how do you think that they like justify this or get past it? Um, why isn't this like a bigger deal in evangelical circles? And insightful. I, I mean, so yeah, I grew up in that same world. Um, and my, definitely my undergrad experience, um, was very similar in that, uh, my, I had an old, my advisor, my old Testament professor, primary old Testament professor, um, was one of the first English translators of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, so like the, none of this was new, <laughs> um, or foreign to him. Uh, there were, I think it depended on the professor. I think with Dr. Tomasino, um, I think he probably would have largely agreed with everything I just said and was probably a bit more suspicious of inerrantism. But his job depended on him not telling his class that. So there's, there's money and there's politics and there's um, statements that you have to sign that when, you, when, you're, when you're a PhD... Uh, student and you've got debts, um, you're going to find a job that you can uh, deal with the least amount of um, <laughs> academic uh, quelling that you can and go for it. And uh, my professors anyway, some of them did a great job of being subversive when they can and sometimes they just had to shut up and sometimes they told me things in their office that they wouldn't say in the classroom. Now, I had other professors um, who would have, you know, they would listen to my lecture today and tell me how many how many ways I was wrong about my conclusions. Um, and I think some of that is is because of the theological system that has been handed to, to some of us um, that I would categorize as a little bit more anxious than necessary that if you pull out one of these bricks and the whole wall comes tumbling down, uh, so you concoct these apologetic systems of, yes, well, there must still be an original, there must still have been one dude named Jeremiah who wrote one thing and anything else is a, um, you know, distraction and, uh, they come up with, you know, yes, the text is 99% similar and there are no theological tenets that disagree. Like you come up with these whole things um, because, I mean, I think about me pre-grad school and, you know, if I, had, if I had just given myself this lecture, how much would have my theological world sort of crumbled? Um, and that's a scary thing to do and some people don't want to walk away from it. Uh, Topher asks in the chat, what sources would have Jesus have read? Jesus would have read something close to the Masoretic text or an Aramaic uh, text. There's plenty of scholarly debate as, if, as to whether or not Jesus knew Greek. Um, so would he have had access to the Septuagint? Would he have read it? Don't know. Uh, but 
most of the time in the New Testament, most of the time, uh, Paul, Peter, John, uh, when they quote the Hebrew Bible, they're quoting the Septuagint. Uh, Avery asks, are there multiple originals a result of oral storytelling or something else? So yeah, um, I, I, I think there's yes and lots of other things. So I think you've got oral storytelling, um, which can result in different ways of shaping a story. Um, you've got different uh, theological interests or traditions. Uh, so this definitely affects the way that First and Second Kings differs from like the books of Chronicles. Um, one example that I often think of is in the King's literature. Uh, the Lord tempts David in a story, and in the Chronicles literature, Satan tempts David. Uh, and so somewhere uh, over the course of history, uh, somebody grew uncomfortable with the idea of God tempting somebody, and so massaged the language to be Satan instead. Uh, so you've got theological interests that may be a part. Um, in the Jer case of Jeremiah, which is some of the largest differences between the Hebrew and the Septuagint, um, it just seems like there's some literary stuff going on of somebody's like, hmm, this seems to be a more interesting way of telling the story if we arrange it like this, as opposed to arranging it like that. Um, and that's interesting that the Hebrew community did not see this as like a, you know, five alarm problem of somebody arranging the story, uh, but rather, you know, they let these different versions keep floating about. All right, Erica asks the hard question. The idea that we should rely on the spirit of the Bible. No, don't be sorry. Uh, the, the, the idea that we should rely on the spirit uh, of the Bible, not focus so much on the Bible itself or its accuracy. Wow, a lovely thought. Seems like a very simple way to tie up the big issues with a bow. How do we reconcile the discrepancies in translation, human error, sociopolitical context and influence, and even captured what that quote-unquote spirit is without being certain of the written word? Love it. Love it. Um, I think this will get, we'll get more into this in other sessions. Um, and this gets into the earlier question of what is it for a text to be authoritative? Um, and I, my, my tie it up in a bow answer uh, is, uh, has to do with the community. Uh, it has to do with what has the community of readers uh, done with this text over time. And that's not actually a tie it up in the bow answer because people have come to a variety of different conclusions. Um, so that's not like it's going to give you one simple answer. Um, but I think probably the biggest mind shift that we have to have is that there's one answer. I think it again goes to the feature of scripture and not its, uh, not its uh, defunctness that people did come to a variety of conclusions. This is also true in the New Testament. It's why we have four Gospels and not just one. Uh, it's why you have a little bit of back and forth between Paul, who is uh, all about that faith, and James, who is all about the faith showing itself in works. You have a variety of conclusions uh, being arrived at. 
and I think where our suspicion should arise are when we try to flatten that into, well, people have always believed this one thing forever and ever the end. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I feel inadequate to give a great answer to you, Erica, other than the fact um, that if we come to a, this library of books expecting there not to be discrepancies in translation, human error, um, context and influence, then we're going to be disappointed. Uh, so I would rather come at this Bible knowing that those discrepancies in translation, human error, uh, sociopolitical context and influence are there um, because that tells me something about myself as well, that I am coming at the, te the text with those same lenses and that we have a whole session on lenses uh, of how we read scripture. Um, that also makes me a heck of a lot less dependent on looking around for the one true church teacher or denomination or church uh, or book that's going to tell me, and this is the one right way. Um, I see the question about deuterocanonical texts. Um, you're welcome. And I'm going to save that one for next week because we're going to do a little bit more work on the New Testament um, next week. And the the deuterocanonical or apocryphal texts connect surprisingly more to the New Testament than to the Old Testament. Um, for those who don't know what those are, those are the books of like Maccabees, some additions to the book of Daniel, Judith, uh, things like that, that came from the Jewish community, um, but were never actually accepted as scripture by the Jews. Uh, so we'll, we'll answer that question more. Um, okay, I, I want to give us a little bit of a break and then uh, do some small group discussion. So take two minutes, stretch, get a drink, and then we, I'm going to throw some questions up on the screen and put you in some breakout groups. Okay, so some questions are up on the screen. Um, so did you grow up with an inerrantance view of Scripture? And why do you think inerrancy was such an important part of the American evangelical Christian understanding of the Bible? Uh, so... You know, this is basically a way to talk about, you know, how, did you grow up with the Bible? How did you grow up with the Bible? Um, and then did anything you learned today surprise you, upset, or unsettle you? What was it and why? So a few ways to enter into some conversation. Um, I'll give you about 10 to 12 minutes to chat and then we'll come do a little bit of uh, large group sharing and conclude for the day so here we go you know a theme um for our group was that we had grown all in very conservative evangelical or catholic um, um families and 
that you know they had a very lenient way of how things were um and obviously that very lenient or just one way that this is you know this is the only way that is done um and that kind of obviously puzzled us and put us in a spot that we were kind of like well i mean in my case you know my own existence it goes against to that one way um and so through our experiences and journeys, I think we have been able to, to find, you know, ways to kind of debate what's kind of like how the Bible is written and have conversations. I think, you know, in the Catholic way, it's like, you don't have even the option to have open dialogue about what's in the Bible. It's just, you're just being told by a figure what you need to do and very strict, like a very like mad God and you don't even understand that. Um, and so <laughs> for me, I'm, I'm, I'm at the point that, you know, I had to put that aside and just, you know, I mean, even Jesus did that he challenged religious figures. And I was just telling the group that we can challenge, you know, what these figures are saying when it's not in line with God's value of love. I think about all oh, this is, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest values that the Bible mentioned, and we should be able to challenge any religious figure when the scripture or what they're saying is not in line with this value of love. Yeah, yeah. So I've overcome this upsetness of, you know, what being told, what what we've been told, you know, we're we're in that learning process, but we get to the point of being like, it's enough, and I can challenge you, and I think Jesus did that, you know. Yeah, that's good. There's an excellent book you can write it down in your ever-growing list of resources called "The Bible Made Impossible" by it's actually a sociologist named Christian Smith, and he in that book explores all the ways that um, people differ on interpretation of scripture. And basically that inerrancy, even if it were true, is kind of worthless to us because there are so many varying uh, perfect interpretations of scripture that what good is it to know that there is an inerrant text beneath it all? Um, and that gets out to like, man, if we're expecting to come at this collection and finding the one right answer, then of course, if I, you know, if I believe that and I were, if I were your pastor, uh, it's called the Bible made impossible, then it would be my moral duty to make sure you know the right answer. And I am, I am love, believe I am loving you by letting you know the right answer. Uh, and that forces us into these these silos of thought, uh, and that's what we experience in, you know, conservative Catholic uh, tradition, conservative Christian traditions. Um, but if we come at this library of, of documents called the Bible, understanding that the Bible itself has diversity of opinion and thought, well, that changes the way that we're going to approach it. Uh, I think it was your question, Spencer, about, you know, why do some of our Bible profs and such uh, still kind of put forth this inerrancy thing. And, you know, I, to give them the benefit of the doubt, inerrancy could be like the laws of physics. 
in that beneath all of our misunderstanding, there is this perfect concept called the inerrant Bible, and it's just our uh, responsibility to figure out what it is. Um, but just because we have misunderstandings or whatever, that doesn't change the fact that the Bible is inerrant. That might be an argument you could use. I, I would, my kind of entry point in arguing against that is the Bible doesn't even claim that about itself. The Bible does not make the claim that it is uh, inerrant. Uh, so maybe we shouldn't be so quick to apply that onto, onto it. Um, I really enjoyed our small group's discussion on like expanding on the why for evangelical Christian communities. Um, and we talked about, and feel free to add to me, guys who are in the group, um, we talked about, you know, it's comforting. Um, it is scalable in a community where it's really all about sharing the word of God as much as possible to as many people as possible because um, it's easier to understand and kind of grapple with. And also it is helpful in like reinforcing existing power structures, um, especially as it relates to like women teaching, um, gay marriage, etc. What's interesting to me, and we didn't discuss it in the, the group, is that, you know, the seems like the, you know, the Bible scholar level concept is there's inerrancy in this original text, but it seems like our day-to-day -day practice of it is there's inerrancy in my NIV version. Uh, and so that is interesting to me how that's gone into kind of our, you know, daily brains is the one I pick up right now. That's the one that's inerrant that, you know, is even taking it to the next level. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up because I was going to, I neglected to answer someone's question from earlier. So why do our Bibles still use the Masoretic text? They, most modern translations don't anymore. Um, they use something that's called a critical edition of the Hebrew text. And what a critical edition is, is that they take all of the variety of ancient manuscripts that we got the bulk of it is the Masoretic, but you've also got all those other things that I listed. And they're making scholarly, you know, guesses would be the maybe not nice word, but like hypotheses as to which one gets back closest to that idea of the original. Um, and then those critical texts are updated every 25, 30 years, about once in a scholarly generation, uh, as new documents, manuscripts, whatever, are unearthed uh, and a new work is done. And there's a whole, it's a whole field of study with its own rules and, and sets of principles as to what, uh, what is probably the more ancient reading. Um, but, you know, even in your English translations, you'll probably come across footnotes that say things like there are some manuscripts that say or other ancient authorities read uh, and that's kind of hinting at that whole other set of work about critical editions all right i need to break you loose um i'm going to send out some resources on kind of our, our class page where we've got a bunch of stuff what i did today was i i did you the favor of distilling down uh hours worth of videos and podcasts uh plus you know my own uh research and study or whatever but if you wanted to dive in more 
Um, Tim Mackey from The Bible Project has a series of podcasts called Making of the Bible. Um, so you can listen to it in like a three-part podcast form or one like hour and a half long video lecture. Uh, and then uh, Pete Inns, part of the episode that you heard today was from Where Did Our Bible Come From, part of his Bible for Normal People podcast. Uh, I'll also add some like books and articles that you can skim or read if you want as well. Uh, next week, uh, we will be getting into um, how did uh, Jews and Christians, um, how did they interpret Scripture? How did they actually take this set of documents um, and begin to apply it to their lives? Uh, so that's going to be our topic for next week. So thank you all so much for joining us today. And I hope you have a blessed Sunday and week.